This is Cultural Mixtapes. I'm Tejas Srinivasan. Welcome to the show. If you keep up with academic chatter in English literature, there's a debate going around about the versatility of English degrees and of the fairly insular nature of literary criticism that comes out of academia. A piece in The New Yorker earlier this year titled The End of the English Major prompted me to do some thinking about the world of literature itself and the people in it. I wanted to speak to someone who's been immersed in the literary world for years and has done a great deal of thinking about trends in contemporary literature. Christian Lorenzen is a freelance literary critic whose work has appeared in several publications including Harper's Magazine, New York Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, and the London Review of Books. In addition to writing book reviews, he's published extensively about the state of the industry, from pieces about tastemaking and popular culture to covering underground art and dramatic movements in New York City. It's easy to see that Christian cares deeply for the project of literary criticism. I wanted to ask him about a variety of topics plaguing my mind recently, but we started off talking about a journalistic assignment Christian had last year. He covered the merger trial between the two publishing houses, Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House. His piece titled At Random dissected the true motivations behind these companies as arguments were made for and against merging. The Harper's piece also offered a broad view on corporate motivations behind the publication of both popular and literary fiction. After speaking about the trial, Christian and I launched into a discussion of American literature of the past 50 years or so. Using writers such as Philip Roth, Don DeLillo, and Thomas Pynchon as benchmarks, we attempted to understand the dialectical nature of trends in art and criticism and create a healthy literary discourse that is often unseen outside of the written word. In a way, this conversation was a work of literary criticism in itself in the audio form, and Christian simultaneously offered a bird's-eye view and a heavily specific read of where his field is going. We do mention many authors and essays in this episode, and they are all linked in the description. A quick note about audio. There were many internet issues during the taping of this conversation, so I apologize if it seems a bit garbled in some places. Hope you enjoy the show. Christian Lorenzen, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Of course. I want to start with a piece that you published earlier this year in Harper's, where you covered the merger that didn't go through of Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. You go in depth in that piece about how writers' advances are calculated, how the small population of writers who regularly receive six-figure advances are actually the ones that the houses are catering towards. And it seems that this trial captured something about the current state of book publishing and the literary environment we live in. Can you talk a bit about what you got from that trial, specifically as to the corporate perspectives on the literary world? Sitting so long in the trial, you come away with a few of your superficial impressions of the publishing industry busted. One is any notion that the sort of literary fiction or just even kind of like highbrow type stuff, the stuff that drives the intellectual discourse in America or in the English language, that stuff is a very small fraction of how the publisher, of what the publishers do and how they make their bottom line. There was a lot more uh, time spent talking about like cookbooks written by celebrities, like new age manuals that also receive a lot of money and like 
HarperCollins makes a lot of its money just by reselling Bibles with special introductions in them. They have a whole section of Christian publishing called like Heartland Literature that makes them oodles of money, you know, far more than like Sally Rooney or whatever. So first of all, it's like a business that has very little to do with the, I don't know, American MFA system. Second of all, a lot came out about the process by which publishers decide to spend money and buy books. And the general method they use when deciding to assign a dollar value to a book proposal that they're purchasing, the technical term for what they do when they buy a book is that they purchase the rights to publish that book in, say, North America. Possibly they, pu they purchase the rights for it to be published in other languages in other parts of the world, but that can vary depending on the title. So in the process of doing that, the method they use is a comparative one. This very simple method is an explanation for the lack of originality in American publishing and American literature generally. And it's the same mentality that leads to phenomena where we see suddenly all the novels have the same type of cover design with pastel splotches of blobs behind big blue letters. It's actually like the unoriginality and lameness of, of American corporate publishing is actually highly scientifically determined. That wasn't the point of my piece, but that's just an observation I made while sitting in a courtroom for 15 days. You obviously detail arguments from both sides, but I guess I'm having some difficulty grasping the case for merging when very clearly people in the publishing world suffer with the merger and less competition. So, I mean, people in the publishing world right now are suffering because the merger didn't happen. Penguin Random House, because A, it had to spend a lot of money on lawyers. B, it had to pay a penalty to Paramount, which owns Simon & Schuster, because the merger failed. Those expenses were quite enormous, and I don't know, believe that it's going to be impossible for Penguin Random House U.S. to turn a profit for the next couple of years because of those expenses. I'm not sure about those numbers, but that's something I heard. Nonetheless, they have huge successes all year long, like the Prince Harry book was just a blockbuster for them. So as a result of the merger not happening, a bunch of people got laid off. However, if the merger had happened, the two corporations, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, would have been consolidated, and a lot of people would have gotten laid off in those circumstances too, although perhaps not as many, I don't know. It could be that a, some kind of like private equity firm purchases Simon & Schuster and hollows it out, or it could be purchased by a benevolent private equity firm, which has purchased Barnes & Noble, and maybe they'll be a good steward. I mean, Simon & Schuster is a very successful and profitable business. So if someone bought it and just kept it running the way it's run now, they'd make a lot of money. Apologies for the interruption, but there were several audio and internet issues during this question that caused Christian's answer to cut out. I managed to salvage most of the answer, but there was a portion where he cut out entirely for several minutes. When we resumed recording, he went on to talk about the relationships that authors have with publishers, and you'll hear the rest of that answer now. 
So you can think of it, the relationship between a publisher and authors in various different ways. You know, like if you are an aspiring literary novelist, you think that the publisher is going to anoint you and bring your artistic works to the public and hopefully garner praise from critics like me that these works deserve. But there are different kinds of authors, such as like Hunter Biden, for example, who's just a famous celebrity because his father is the president, right? They hired a very good ghostwriter to write that book. And so it's a pretty good book in some ways. But a writer like that, an author like that, who's not even writing his own book, is looking for a publisher that can effectively market it. And, you know, they're almost entering into a partnership. And so the idea of the publisher as providing a service to the author in that case does make sense. The people who were arguing on behalf of Penguin Random House and Simon Schuster was said that a larger, even more powerful, more efficient corporation that had all the warehouses and all the trucks, you know, and all the relationships with printers, which is actually a big problem right now in the publishing biz. There are paper shortages and inflation is causing the distribution of books to be much more costly and you know barnes and noble doesn't want to sell paperback versions of new nonfiction books and that's very disruptive to the corporate publishing business so there are all these things that have nothing to do with like you know writing beautiful poetry that i learned about at the uh, publishing trial i guess now coming at it from the opposite angle of the writer which I think fits with another piece that you wrote for Book Forum in a review of the Philip Roth biography by Blake Bailey. This was before multiple reports of sexual assault and rape came out about Bailey. In that piece about the biography, you write that more than realism or its rivals, the dominant literary style in America is careerism. This is neither a judgment nor a slur for decades. It has simply been the case that novelists, story writers, even poets have had to devote themselves to managing their careers as much to writing their books. Just talk about where this idea of careerism in fiction came to you, and when did you start seeing these trends? Obviously, you say that the ultimate careerist was Philip Roth. I would never have written those lines if the task before me hadn't been to review a biography. If somebody said, write me an essay about the novels of Philip Roth, and I sat down and I reread 20 or like all 35 novels or whatever, it would not have occurred to me to to call him a careerist in that way. But the biography that I was reviewing was so wrapped up both in kind of vicissitudes of Roth's personal life, but also in his machinations as an author trying very hard to be very successful. There are famous American authors of his generation who are genuinely reclusive, like Don DeLillo, Cormac McCarthy, Thomas Pynchon. Roth, A, he was not that reclusive, but he's, he, once he got a hostile interview in the, in, when he was first coming around in the late 50s, he didn't go completely out of circulation. What he did, and in fact, he was a very social animal within the New York intellectual world. You know, everybody in that world knew him, which is not true of DeLillo or Pynchon and certainly not uh, Cormac McCarthy, who like never came to New York City as far as I know. 
Roth very rigorously managed his public image and persona, and he would pick some protege of his to do the interview with him and then make sure it ran in the New York Times book review. There are lots of pages in the biography about him going over marketing memos with his publicists as late as like he's pushing 80 at this point and still doing stuff like that, you know, and he's already the most famous author in the U.S. That biography kind of skimped on the literary criticism of Roth's books. So in reviewing it, you kind of had two ways to go. You could write about Roth's sex life, or you could write about his careerism, or you could write a piece like Josh Cohen did complaining that the novels had been neglected in favor of the sex life and the careerism. So I chose the careerism. In terms of leaving Roth aside, I think that, you know, if you're judging by both literary discourse today, by which I basically mean Twitter, but also the way the, the sorts of essays that people write, and also in my like limited view of kind of institutional gatherings like the AWP conference and the general MFA scene, there's more and more just like, anxiety being expressed about authorship as a career path and all of the like little job type things you have to do to keep that game alive for you you know now people take courses about how to get an agent and how to pitch and how to do this and that and then like you know there was a story out in the UK a couple weeks ago about how authors are suffering mental health crises when they publish their book. That's less a story about careerism than it is about the therapeutic mindset, I suppose. I guess a third thing you might say is like in the autofiction era, you have a lot of fiction being written about the act of attending a literary conference. Ben Lerner's 1004 begins with him going out to lunch with an, his agent and getting a book deal. And whether that book deal will allow him to, you know, support the baby he might have with his platonic friend, the narrator's platonic friend, not Lerner. Anyway, does that explain what you were asking me? Yeah, it's interesting because you even talk in that piece about how Roth also loved sticking to his style of exaggerating moments from his life or using autobiographical metafiction, sometimes just to feed into this fervor that he was generating about his own appearance and place. And it almost seems that in today's market, when a writer publishes a new novel, there's almost a requirement for a slew of essays about that author's life, even if they're not related to the subject of the novel. What do you think a trend like this, where there's an unnecessary conflation of the author's life and the fictional material. What does a trend like that do to the fiction market? I've just been working on an essay about Don DeLillo, who at a very early stage in his career decided not to be an autobiographical writer. There are elements of his own experience in some of his books, like in Underworld, many of the characters came, come from the same Bronx neighborhood that he came from. And... There's a lot of deeply felt sentiment in that book, but it's not autobiographical in, this, in the way that Philip Roth or John Updike were or the autofiction writers are t of today are. Um, I don't know. I think if we're thinking of this stuff as a trend, then I think probably the way trends happen in art tends to be dialectical. So... 
you know, we had the era of, you know, highly postmodern fiction that was not very personal and, in fact, was criticized for being too impersonal with characters who weren't really real. They were just like cultural constructs and ideas that authors had used to move through a modern, hyper-technical world of information. That was James Wood's argument about hysterical realism. Then suddenly those books stopped coming out very much and you had, you know, a lot of American authors trying to write like W.G. Zabald and writing the their more uh, self-scrutinizing autofiction. There are already signs that that era is over and people are tired of it. There has to be some kind of new variation on it for people to read it. I think that all of these things as literary phenomena, the more they become the case, the more likely it is for them to bring their opposites into being just by being so much the case. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, can you say a bit more? You said that people started imitating Zabold, and if right now autobiographical metafiction is all the rage, what do you see coming as the reaction to that? I think first what you'll see is a lot of like hyper-surrealist parodies of autofiction. I've already seen some young people writing stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of energy, it seems to me, on certain in certain areas of literary culture that used to be considered outside of literary culture, like genre writing, particularly sci-fi and speculative writing. I mean, I, the way I think of that genre's relationship to literary fiction is, you know, there's a lot of great imaginative literature in that genre, not very much of it is very well written and any of it that is very well written also counts as literary fiction simply because of the nature of technological revolutions we've been undergoing you know i was ha i'm hanging out in albania right now i was hanging out with a with a uh albanian novelist he said a lot of his students were writing dystopias and he's like that's the most hackneyed genre there is right now but everybody wants to write dystopias because a they're being bombarded with news of the apocalypse via climate change and b they see a lot of books like that selling and being turned into tv shows so even not in a cynical way they want to get in on the action and be part of the conversation i think things tend to happen dialectically but in an unpredictable way right so I am not good at predicting the future and, you know, I'm not a gambler. One thing I'll say is that literature will continue to be written and people will continue to read it. Maybe not as many as, I don't know, the one, there's a huge delusion in the literary world that, like, things that writers do matter on a massive scale. That is completely alien to my experience of America and any other place I've been anywhere in the world. Books and reading to the American public do not matter at all. Most people in America hate reading and are anti-intellectual. The things that they care about are like sports, their family, their property, and their vehicle. <laughs> you know, like they do not give a shit about the new Jonathan Lethem novel, even though he's a very good writer. Therefore, I think instead of 
people being sad about literature not being popular, I think they should be happy that we exist in a realm that because the stakes are so low, it can be a realm of like freedom and playfulness. If that community of readers is small, you write about an even smaller community in a piece that you wrote in 2019 for Harper's about the decline in book reviewing. You talk about how in its traditional written form, it's declined and it's often replaced with this recommendation culture and listicles and almost effort to be positive and that constructive negative criticism has almost disappeared. I'm somewhat guilty of this. I ask for book recs at the end of these episodes. My question is, what is the purpose in today's climate, in today's literary culture, however small that is, what is the purpose of a book review and how do you think that has changed in the four years since you wrote that article? The purpose of a book review is for occasions for critics to do their writing, I think now more. I mean, as a critic, you have a certain responsibility towards the object of your criticism. And you have to be fair. You have to be honest. You have to make the piece be about what you're criticizing or either it has to be about what the object of your criticism is or it has to be about the thoughts and ideas that that object of criticism leads you to you can make the show all about yourself however the book reviews that are worth reading are the ones that are written by you know not necessarily full-time critics but critics who have done some thinking about the project of criticism so I would say the purpose of book reviews in the platonic sense is criticism itself. Interesting. So then when you write in that same piece, you write that, well, you describe a feud that Philip Roth had with one of his many critics, and you write that such polemics and feuds are the signs of a healthy literary culture, a zones where the stakes are high, and even if the audience is small and may reside mostly in posterity. Do you think that relationship, however small it may be now, does that develop the state of criticism then? Well, Ryan Ruby, my friend, has an argument that he made recently that I um, intend to respond to. He argues that we're living in a golden age of criticism and that criticism itself has become an art form with its own distinct audience that has been flourishing because of social media. I think there's a lot of merit to his argument, but I don't know, being maybe an Aristotelian, the idea of attributing merit to something because of its audience or because it's created an audience is alien to me. I am much more think of things of having either intrinsic value or not, or having some level of intrinsic value. Um, but I haven't really done my philosophy in a long, long time. That's Ryan's argument. I think another complicating factor with Ryan's argument, if we're to be talking about a golden age of criticism, it's a separate argument than what the argument that I was making in that Harper's piece wasn't about critics themselves, who I think are, there are a lot of really good critics out there in English, a lot of my friends or rivals. It was about the editors and institutions and newspapers and magazines who were basically pursuing, especially the New York Times and also New York Magazine, where I had recently been the book critic, they're pursuing like basically just clickbait literary garbage content, right? 
they were basically doing what I think of as like literary content for people who don't read. My argument was mainly with the editors and managers, not with the critics. I think the other complicating factor for Ryan's argument about living in a golden age of criticism, are we living in a literary golden age? I'm not sure. A lot of the critics that he lists as being part of this golden age of criticism constantly write about dead people. I think for it to qualify as a golden age, we need the literature and the criticism to be intertwined dialogue with each other. So that's a response I'm going to write one of these days when I have some more time. Um, in a similar light, so what audience do you think you're writing to today? And is it the same small esoteric group of people that you talk about in the piece? I mean, in my head, I write, think of myself as writing to like younger versions of myself or like my writing to myself at the moment when I was like 23 or so when I was, you know, you know, reading two or three or four or five books a week and hadn't yet figured out how to become a writer. And that self that I could be writing to could be any age, any gender, you know, maybe not even a native English speaker, whatever. I'm not thinking of like, I'm not saying that I write for white dudes from outside Boston, far from it. <laughs> um, the more you start to imagine readers and concerns that they might have that aren't central to your literary project, like doing that, I find it to be completely worthless. So that question only has li very limited relevance to me, I would say. Elizabeth Hardwick, who you quote in that piece, talked back in 1959 about the decline of book reviewing. And since then, obviously, several critics have contributed to similar conversations. Risking cliche, I want to bring up Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I have been uh, meaning to actually, you know, I've read some Marshall McLuhan and read about him, but I've never gone and just sat down and read his books. You know, like, I don't know. Have you read Understanding Media? I've read the, like, the chapter of Medium is the message. I'm not sure if that's the book or the chapter, but it's like 30 pages or something like that. Yeah, I think I probably read that too when I was an undergraduate. At this point, I feel like it's circulating in most American institutions. If you want to watch something really uh, fascinating or throw this link up, there's an interview on Canadian television. It's like a dual interview between McLuhan and Norman Mailer. It's one of my favorite things. Oh, really? He's, he's a fascinating character. Um, so bringing up McLuhan, as the culture progresses and the space and acceptance of a traditional written book review change, do you think there are any other forms of media that can provide this? You know, or I know where you're going here, man. And yeah. It happened to me once in a, in a forum interview before. I do not pay attention to book talk, you know, like, I don't know if I'm watching something on video, I generally want it to be either like film noir or art cinema or, uh, I don't know, Leo's Carax or Kurosawa, or I want it to be like an NBA basketball game from the 1980s. You know, like I'll listen to uh, interviews with famous authors like that McLuhan mailer one i just mentioned to you i know that there are a lot of people who take like youtube film criticism very seriously but i just don't really 
I mean, there are even within the realm of of like written criticism published in periodicals, there's all kinds of creative things you can do with that. So that's the zone I'm interested in. And my example of somebody who does like fantastic new creative things with literary criticism right now is Patricia Lockwood. How so? Let me get up. Uh, I've written a draft, an essay for the New York Times that mentions Patricia, but we decided we're going to take her out of it. But I can um, read you something I wrote in that draft about the piece she recently published in the London Review of Books about DFW. Her critical method partakes of the slapstick lyricism of her poetry and fiction, along with a deep sensitivity to the predicaments of the writers she scrutinizes. Her reviews often masquerade as narratives of her reading experience, but they're as intricately constructed as any of her poems. I love her criticism in part because it's so much different from my own and or anybody else's. Her essay made me want to reread Waz top to bottom. So anyway, yeah, I don't know why I quoted that, but I had it to hand. No, that's fascinating. Um, I haven't read her piece about DFW, but I will go take a look. I want to switch gears, talk about Pynchon and DeLillo, because you've been tweeting a lot about them. You wrote in book form in the summer of 2021 about the way ironic and gothic fiction changed in the Obama era in that way people lost the ability to cloak fiction in heavy irony. And you claim that with that, we lost something substantial in fiction. Writers who have consistently kept their style up throughout the years. Talk to me about how writers like Pynchon and DeLillo, how do you read them now in today's time? I reread The Crying of Lot 49 about a month ago. and. Uh... I couldn't stop thinking about whether it could be adapted. It's a lot more cartoonish than Inherent Vice, which I had also rewatched Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation, which is just great. And I imagined, um, I don't know, Wes Anderson. I tried to wonder whether Wes Anderson was capable of adapting Pynchon or whether his Pynchon has a kind of gestalt that's both juvenile and cartoonish, but also, you know, adults in that characters sleep together and do adult things like that whereas like increasingly wes anderson is like almost stuck stuck in like a prepubescent mentality when it comes to these things i don't know i mean that's not entirely true there's certainly the widowed father and the divorced or single mother in asteroid city are horny characters in any case moving along from that i've been rereading underworld for this essay about DeLillo that I've written and the knock on them the last time they were coming up for knocks is that they wrote a literature of paranoia right and DeLillo will straight up say like the CIA replaced the church and Paranoia and awe are the feelings that have replaced religion. Pynchon is, there's some line in, about paranoia in uh, Bleeding Edge, his last novel, that's like, you can't get enough of it, it's always true, or something like that. I, I'm botching it, but um, on the one hand, the paranoia has gotten a very bad rap in our current political culture because of like QAnon and um, certain, you know, 9-11 truthers and other conspiracy theorists. 
But then meanwhile, the CIA has done horrific things throughout its existence. It's not even a century old. And there's a certain strain of Maryland, uh, American liberalism that now is telling us to put our faith in the CIA and the FBI. And I find it very, uh, find that whole phenomenon very disquieting. I think that there's a lot of power in the works of Pynchon and DeLillo and the experiences that their characters go through. That's what I'm thinking right now. I, in fact, I've got to refine that, those statements to put them into uh, the conclusion of this DeLillo piece I'm working on. Wonderful. And my last question that I always ask, slightly different for you, three novels that you've never talked about or written about that you would recommend that don't get enough attention. They can be movies too. I mean, I've never written about Martin Amos's dead babies, and I didn't really get to mention it in my obituary for him, so that's one. Number two, I have written about but not published yet. I think DeLillo's best novel and perhaps my favorite American novel is The Names, his novel that came out in 1983, set in Greece, narrated by a man who doesn't realize he's working for the CIA. And then just because of the mood I'm in, I'm going to say that uh, the best film watching experience that has stuck with me the most in the past year or so has been these kind of films with modern settings of Kurosawa's, particularly uh, High and Low, The Bad Sleep Well, and um, those two kind of go together. You could pair them also with uh, Stray Dog, too. So, Did you see the living adaptation with Ishiguro's script? That's quite nice. As no. You. Oh, yeah, you know, I have not seen that, but I've been meaning to. Can I tell you a fun anecdote about Ishiguro? Yeah. He's a really nice guy to talk to at London literary parties. And uh, one time I just asked him, like, Ish, like, what have you been up to? He's like, I've been rereading Homer because Homer is the best thing to reread when you're writing a screenplay. Good tidbit, huh? Lovely. Um, I believe that is all. Thank you very much for your time. This was great. Hey, man, really fun talking to you. And that's our show. Special thanks to Christian Lorenzen for joining me on this episode. To learn more about his work and see a list of his pieces that we discussed, as well as his recommendations, visit the show notes. Cultural Mixtapes is written and produced by me, Tejas Srinivasan. The music you heard on today's episode was Beethoven's Sonata No. 26 and Chopin's Sonata No. 2, recorded by me. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, review, and share on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Thank you very much for listening.